Well, welcome to The Journey. Uh, my name is Kevin Polkey, and I have a, a, a special guest with us today. She has been with us. We were just talking. She has last been on The Journey four years ago, right at roughly about this time. Uh, Erica, uh, now, Erica, you all, I'm going to massacre your last, how you say your last name, because it's Esselman. changed from Eiselman, right? Eiselman. Esselman. Okay. And um, and I know there's been some changes since the last time uh, you were on the show and some some pretty big things in your life have changed and and you continue to uh, continue to be an active part in our community in the Rockford greater area. But maybe before uh, we get too far into all that, if you could just maybe share with the listeners, what what does Erica do for fun when you have an opportunity uh, to 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 be able to have some fun? Sure. So I love fitness. So for me, uh, an hour of working out or running is fun. I have run a half marathon every year since I got sober uh, seven years ago. And I said it's in September, the end of September. I said I would keep doing it every year until my body can't anymore. So right now I'm training for that. I consider the training for that to be part of my fun. Uh, good for good for uh, my mind. And then spending time with my kids. I love to bake uh, yard work, love to garden. I also love to read and traveling has become a very big thing in my life um, that I do for fun. And that's something new that I was never able to do before. So I actually travel a lot and then spend time with friends too. Nice. So, so tell us a little bit about the traveling piece. So where are some places that you've been and where are some places that are on the list where you would like to go? Sure. So basically I say yes to almost every trip. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, spent a lot of years not living my best life. So when opportunities come up, I try to not overthink it and just say, yes, there was actually a, a Facebook friend. We'd known each other for years, but you know, you're, you're Facebook friends, but you aren't really friends, friends. And she reached out to me over a year ago and said, Hey, I love what you're putting out there into the world. Could we be friends? Could we have dinner? I said, absolutely. So we had dinner and she mentioned that she had a beach house in Galveston, Texas, and Two months later, they were going to go on a girl's trip. She said, would you like to join us? And I knew no one that was going. And my first response was, oh, no, no, like that, that would be really awkward. I'm not going to do that. And then I sat back and thought for a minute and I said, I would actually love to go. Uh, and I and I went. So I I love the beach, but really just anywhere um, where where I can see things that make me realize what's out there in the world and that make me realize how different and how beautiful my life is now than it was before. So I love to snow ski. Uh, I went with my brother to Lake Tahoe a few years ago. I'm taking my son to Colorado. He loves to ski too in February. Uh, this year I've been to Siesta Key. My aunt and uncle have a condo there. So I've been there uh, three times. I took the kids to Mexico uh, then to Orlando, and then I'm going to San Diego. So really just anywhere where I can get away for a few days and just see, see the world. I love, I love adventure and doing all the things. Well, nice. Well, thank Well, Erica, just your energy when just talking about it, I imagine that when you went down to Galveston that time, even though you didn't really know anybody down there, I imagine that you probably walked away with more than a couple friends. <laughs> yeah, I did. I, it was funny. We saw 
my favorite part of that trip, well, I bought a kite. I bought a kite. People were flying kites on the beach and I like to do all the fun things. And if I'm doing something, I don't just do it half-ass. Um, I'm like, let's make it the most fun it can be. Um, so I bought a rainbow kite because I love rainbows and I flew it on the beach. <laughs> there were these uh, seagulls that would dive down into the water and catch these fish. It was like they were just dive on me and I just got such a kick out of it. And I would just giggle and giggle every time. And they, they just thought it was so entertaining. And uh, yeah, I, I walked away with, with more friends than I went there with. So it was, right. it was great. You can tell who your people are, you know, yeah. when you hang around people, you can tell who reciprocates uh, your energy. And then I tried to go to those people. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Erica, why don't you just for, for our listeners and, and I know some, I know four years ago, you talked a little bit about, you, you know, your, your backstory, but for to, just to recap for our listeners now, you, you've, you've talked a couple times today about differentiating and the appreciation you have for the life you're living now comparatively to life, uh, life, you know, five, seven years ago. So maybe, maybe share a little bit about what was life like before? What were some of the contributing factors to what was going on? And, and then what have, what's, you give us an examples of what life is different now, but what are the things that you do now that have uh, allowed you to see life from a different perspective? Okay. You might have to remind me of part of that. <laughs> if I get that, remind me of the second part when I'm, yep. when I'm you know, through yep. the first. Yep. So um, I grew up in a divorced family. Uh, I consider some of these things that that I'll say to you part of the reason that maybe led to my alcoholism. I know that that's a touchy subject with some people because they, a lot of people feel that alcoholism is genetic, which I do agree with. But I also agree that two people could have the same genetic structure but be raised in different homes and, and one go through trauma and one not go through trauma and one may end up turning to substances more than the other one would, if that makes sense. So that's 100%. just that's just my personal take on it. Yep. So uh, a few of the things that probably led into me being an alcoholic, uh, my parents got divorced when I was very young. I was five and my mom, uh, someone knocked on her door and she became a Jehovah's Witness. So um, it wasn't a friendly divorce. It was a lot of arguing between my parents and pulling my brother and I, who was three years younger, his name was Josh, in different directions. And uh, my mom ended up getting custody of us. And I didn't see my dad from the age of 10 until like 21. So my mom raised my brother and I alone. Um, we were extremely poor. I shared a bedroom with her. Uh, in a little apartment, we'd have to move from time to time because she couldn't even afford, you know, the apartment where her rent went according to her income. Uh, she was very mentally ill. Um, she, <laughs> there was a lot. Uh, she, uh, she made me be responsible for her feelings. So I was the parent. So at night, I had to share a bed with her. And if she was upset about any random thing. She would be crying and I would be trying to go to bed because I had school the next day. And she would say, if you cared about me, you would stay up and talk to me about this. And um, it, it was just a lot on me emotionally. And then not having, um, you know, my, my dad around to know what was going on and just, just have that balance or that break 
from her. Um, so I was raised very strict in that religion. Uh, there's a lot of rules. You're not involved with people at school. You, you can't hang out with them. You don't do sports, homecoming, prom, anything like that. Uh, when there were class parties, I would have to go to the library because you couldn't be there for a holiday party. So I always felt like I didn't fit in. I just didn't fit in. I felt like to the kids at school, I had to hide who I was because I would get made fun of. It was embarrassing. Um, so I went through school, got married when I was 18 to my kid's dad. He was also a Jehovah's Witness. You need to marry in the religion. Um, and you don't have sex before you get married. You can't live together before you get married. So you get married when you're 18. <laughs> um, so that we're actually still very good friends to this day, but you know, that, that didn't last. I, I think we were married about like 11 years, um, three years after we were married. So I was 21. Uh, my brother, uh, committed suicide. So that, um, was trauma in my life. He was, he was my best friend. Uh, and that sent my mom in even more of a downward spiral mentally than she had already been. So instead of getting help to, you know, getting involved with grief groups or therapy, she used food my whole life, my whole life. She used food as, as her coping mechanism. Um, so to the point where uh, I just, she passed away this last April and it was from diabetes because she just never would treat it and ate out for comfort my entire life. So um, after my brother died, it was a lot more on me with my mom emotionally and also trying to deal with my own emotions. My dad did come back into my life then. So after my brother died, we made amends for how things had went in the past with us. He came back into my life. I my husband and I, the kid's dad, ended up leaving the religion when my daughter started kindergarten. We just said that we couldn't raise our kids like that. We wanted them, above all, to be emotionally and mentally healthy. We wanted to raise kids. We wanted to give them the best chance because we know how hard it is, especially like mental illness runs in my family. Um the world, it, it's just hard. The things are hard and we wanted to give them the best shot and we didn't feel like we could do it raising them in that religion, how we were raised. So we left. Um, we ended up getting divorced and I, some at some point during the time where we left the religion, I had never really drank, never really drank that much at all. And I had been raised really sheltered. Well, when we started going out with people who weren't in the religion, I would drink to help my anxiety to feel like I could fit in with them. So I felt I was painfully shy, so, so shy. So when I had that drink, I would relax and I could talk to everyone. Well, it turned into where I was drinking every day, that alcohol was my best friend. And I'm sure it had something to do with all the trauma I'd been through from my mom, the religion losing my brother, not having my dad. It was just a lot of things. And I would be at home at night by myself after the divorce and I would drink. It, it was every single day until it turned in to causing a problem in my life. Um, wherever I would go, it was always, oh, let's hope Erica gets drunk tonight because she's the life of the party and she's going to do all the crazy things. And then I would wake up the next day embarrassed, humiliated, 
I would be hungover. I gained 30 pounds. I, I had a very low self-esteem and it was causing problems in my life. But when I would try to quit, I couldn't, it, it was so much anxiety in that obsession for alcohol would, would not leave. I couldn't stop thinking about it. So I would always go back to, I'll just have one, I'll just have two, or I'll just have wine. I'll in, and I just exhausted all my options eventually. And, um, I, I, the time when I finally decided to quit was seven years ago. So it'll be seven years ago tomorrow. I hit a very low point. Um, and I'm comfortable talking a little bit more about why now, um, because I've made amends with some people since we've talked last and, you know, just very open about things. But my kid's dad actually got married. So their anniversary was yesterday and I could not handle it. I was at this point in my life. I had a boyfriend. I wanted to get married because he was because my, my ex-husband was. So I wanted from the outside for my life to look as good and be as quote unquote happy as his was. And because I was unhappy and I wasn't getting married, um, there was just a lot of pain involved with him getting married. Mm. Um, but I didn't really feel like I could say that as I was in a relationship, I was, I, I didn't know how to process all of those feelings, but, um, that just, sent me into a spiral. And um, I ended up having a lot to drink that tomorrow, seven years ago. And um, I ended up trying, uh, grabbing a bottle of pills. And I just didn't want to be here anymore. Mm -hmm. And the thought, I, I only wanted to be here for my kids, but I didn't feel like I could do this anymore. I didn't feel like I was a valuable member of society. I didn't feel like I was doing anything good in people's lives that I was involved in. And I didn't know how to get out of it. So I think that that was more of a cry for help. And my friend ended up taking me to the hospital and I got checked in and I was of course drunk when I got there, but I, I knew that I needed to stay. I knew that I needed help. So I spent four nights there and I saw, you know, a lot of things I didn't want to see people who would slit their throats and had been there so many times. This was their fifth time back there. And I thought, I don't belong here. I'm not like them. I'm better than them. Um, but I knew that I did belong there because I, I couldn't function. I was waking up in the morning hungover, getting the kids to school and taking a sleeping pill to go back to sleep because I needed to be able to sleep until it either was an acceptable time to drink again or so that I didn't feel so hungover. So I wasn't living a good life. So I knew I did belong there. The doctor told me that uh, the answer was I needed to quit drinking. And I said, no, you really just need to adjust my antidepressant and anxiety medication and everything will be okay. <laughs> I still, I just could not give up, think about a life without alcohol. So I got out, I started running every day. I didn't drink for six weeks when I got out. I lost a bunch of weight. I was feeling better, but it was always in the back of my mind. I'm going to get to drink again. 
I just have to prove to everybody that I'm getting my life under control. I'm doing good things. And I got this this time. So six weeks went by. And I remember telling my boyfriend at the time and my kids, I got this. We're going out to dinner. I'm going to have a drink. Same thing. Back within a week, I was back to where I was. Just couldn't control the alcohol. I tried like three different times, I think, over from August to November, seven years ago to stop. And finally, I just exhausted all my options. So one night um, I got drunk. I was with friends making boards at a studio in Roscoe. I had way too much to drink. I texted my boss and said I was quitting my job that night to start this board business. And I got home and the kids were like, oh my God, mom's drunk again. She really did it. She quit her job. And that was November 27th. So I woke up the next morning completely hungover. I was like, oh shit, I quit my job. But something in me was like, you are freaking done with this. You have exhausted all your options. You are holding yourself back. You're done. So I started the board business and that day was the last day that I ever took a drink. So my sobriety day is November 28th of 2016. And that's when I started. So when I talk about like before and after, it's, November 28th when I got drunk and quit my job and then I got my butt to AA and that's the last day that I ever took a drink. Okay. Okay. So that's, that's the before and after there's the, there's the line, the the beginning, beginning of the new Erica was November 28th. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. And, and you said November of, of 16, you said? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and so what have you in the last four years, Right. And and I know that uh, so in the last four years, what things so the first three years would have been from 16 to 19. Yeah. And and then and then we then we met. And so in the last in, in the last four years, what are some things that Erica has found out about yourself Ooh. that that you hadn't in the first three? You know, so much it's. It's crazy. Uh, I don't, it's funny. I remember telling my story with you the first time and I got choked up and would cry a lot. And I'm able to tell my story without crying as much now. And I think that that looks like healing. Mm -hmm. But when I talk about the last four years now, I'll probably cry because it's not just about quitting drinking. It's about creating a life that is so beautiful and relationships in your life that you can't ever imagine going back to where you were before. And that takes some serious work. Um, There's a lot of people that I know that are sober, but they're not happy. They're not living their best life. And it's my goal to always look inside and say, what could I be doing different? How can I be better? How can I make other people's lives better? How can I make my own life better? Um, How can I be a force for change in the world? So um, let's see, I bought a building since I talked to you last. So for my board business, I bought a building that was right before COVID hit. Um, To make it through COVID, I started doing to-go kits and had my best year yet in the business. People would pick up these boards that were sanded and stained in the paint from my front step and they would do it. I just showed myself that I didn't have to let anything external, anything that was happening in the world, I didn't have to let that stop me. And it was never enough 
to pick up a drink over, even though a month after I closed down this building, which if you knew what my credit score was and how much money I didn't have when I first got sober, it was like a miracle that I was able to buy this building on my own. So then when a month later, and we had just won like small business of the year through the Chamber of Commerce, everything was going so so good. I remember saying to someone, how can life get any better than this? And then uh, COVID hit, but I just pushed through it and had a fabulous year. And even the next year was a great year. I then, <laughs> this is a little hard to talk about. And I, you know, I want to be uh, also careful of, you know, every just what I say, because some things my therapist has taught me I try to be very open and transparent, but it's not, I share a lot about my life, but then I also remember that, um, it's not, oh, not everything about my life. Life is everyone's business to know. <laughs> so <laughs> there, you know, there's a line about, about sharing, but I ended up getting divorced. So I think when I talked to you, I had maybe just got married and, um, I had been with him since who I was drinking. I, I want to say it, it was through maybe four or five years of my drinking. And they tell you in AA, don't get married or get in any relationships when you first get sober, because you're going to change a lot. I thought like I was already in this relationship. So, and I, I wanted to get married and looking back, I don't know why I feel I've, I've done a lot of soul searching about it. I feel like I, my self-esteem was still at a very low point from being an alcoholic. And even though I was recovered, recovering, I still didn't see my worth. I viewed the label of an alcoholic as almost a damaged label, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I thought someone wanting to marry me almost proved my worth. Like I was, I, I was now good enough that someone would want to spend the rest of their life with me. I remember knowing that I didn't think that I was in love, but he loved me and we got along pretty good. So that should be enough. And I got married. I think it was two Two years into it, I read a book, uh, Glennon Doyle's Untamed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Have yep. you read that? Yep. yep. Yeah. After I read that book, I knew in my mind I had to get divorced. It was, I, I remember, um, I remember, this is some kind of personal stuff. I remember saying to my dad, I said, I don't feel like I'm fulfilled in my relationship. I I feel like every other area of my life, I'm I'm giving it my all and I have these these honest relationships, but I feel like I'm not fulfilled in my my marriage. And I remember my dad saying to me, Oh, but honey, you have a roof over your head. And it took me back to her book where like that caged, isn't it? The cheetah in, mm -hmm. in her book, like it has a home. It has a home. It gets fed. Shouldn't that be enough? But it was meant to run free. Mm -hmm. That was a really hard decision. And um, I, 
I voiced that I didn't want to be married anymore. And then it took six months. And I, I just knew that it wasn't going to, he is a great guy, a great guy. But I knew for me, I had changed so much that we just weren't compatible in the ways that I needed. And that was a really scary decision when I decided to uh, get divorced. I bought a little house on my own with my kids. They're 21 and 19 now. I started over and it was terrifying to be alone financially. There were some days that I went through hard times through all of that. Um, some of those, some of it was decisions that I had made. So, so the, the pain was self-inflicted, you know, we're, I'm, I'm human. So I make mistakes too. So some of, uh, my hard times through that was self-inflicted pain that I had to go through, but I learned to be alone and I had never, this makes me cry my entire life. I had never been alone and it was scary as hell. I got married when I was 18. Uh, when I got divorced from him, I was out at the bar all the time and I would go from one boyfriend to the next because I couldn't be alone. I didn't want to be alone. It was uncomfortable. And so this was the first time in my life that I was actually alone, but I knew that I needed to be, I knew that it was part of my growth and I knew that I needed to work on myself because if I ever chose to find another partner in life, I wanted to be crystal clear on what I wanted and needed. And I did not ever want to settle again on, on what I needed from a relationship. And I realized that over the seven years, I had changed and grown so much that my goals and what I wanted in a partner were just completely different from when I started. So it's been it's been great uh, being alone. It's been different. Um, so that that is what happened in my personal life uh, over the last it'll be two years now in okay. in November. Okay. My mom got sick a year ago. And I think you remember me talking about her the first time on the podcast. Yep. She was still Jehovah's Witness up until the day that she died. We had an extremely strained relationship. She never approved of the way that I was living my life after I left the religion. So there was a lot of conflict to the point where I had to set a boundary after a lot of years of treatment that was damaging emotionally, I had to say, look, this is who I am. If you can't respect the way that I've chose to raise my children and where I'm at in my life, you can be a part of my life, but your opinion in voicing it or making snide remarks is not welcome. So if you still choose to do that, I'm sorry, but I can't associate with that. And so over the last five or six years, I she'd come and go from my life off and on. And then when she got very sick, it was actually just a year ago. I'm the only one to take care of her because mm -hmm. I had lost my brother. She'd never got remarried her whole life. She had people from her congregation, but my mom liked to argue with everyone in her life. She would push them away, uh, part of the mental illness. Mm -hmm. So she would get she would all of a sudden be in the hospital last year and we'd get a call. Nobody knew that she'd been taken to the hospital. Nobody knew the whole story on what was wrong because she would twist the truth. And you never knew if she was lying about 
why she was there and they'd put her on an antibiotic. She'd quit taking it, but not tell you that it was just really frustrating. Um, but I, I did what I felt God would want me to do. And I did what I felt I needed to do so that after she died, I could stay sober and be happy and be at peace. And it was really hard because I chose to forgive someone that had caused a lot of pain in my life. And she would say she was sorry at certain times for certain things. Like when I said I would help care for her, she, of course, said, I'm sorry. I know life hasn't always been easy for us. Um, I'm sorry for where I've hurt you. But the hard thing about that is that her behavior never could follow in line with the apology. So even though an apology would come, I knew that within a month, she would be back to saying things that were very hurtful. Uh, me having a relationship with my dad was very hard for her to accept. And it would always, it would always go back to her being spiteful mm -hmm. towards me about that. I did my best job. There were a lot of times um, over the past year, she would get mad at me for all different things. And she would say, that's it. I'm just going to have the Jehovah's Witnesses take care of me. And finally, I had to say, okay, if that's, if that's how you feel, go ahead. And then nobody would, she wouldn't tell us what was going on for a month or two. And she really wasn't having anyone care for her. And then she'd end up back in the hospital because of decisions she would make, uh, choices she would make, not taking her insulin, um, eating bad things, just not taking care of herself. Uh, so then I would show up again and uh, I I had a lot of mixed emotions about that because I believe in not getting taken advantage of, but I also believe in doing the right thing and forgiving. So mm -hmm. in March, she ended up um, needing to go on hospice and I had that conversation with her and I was with her when she left her apartment for the last time and we made the decision and then she got put in a nursing home and it was about three weeks after that that she passed and I went there Every day, um, most days, twice, two or three times a day, I sat with her uh, on the way, her last trip from the hospital to the nursing home. I asked her if there was anywhere that she would want to go. It was a beautiful spring day and she wanted to drive through Beefaroo for a milkshake, of course. <laughs> and I was like, at this point, it doesn't even matter. We're not worried about that. And she wanted to go uh, to my brother's grave. And, you know, I felt that it was fitting. She didn't have the strength to get out of the car. But I got out and went and put flowers on it. And I told her that I would keep coming there even after she was gone. And it just really sank in that day. That was what made her the happiest was going to his grave. And my whole life, she never got over it. I'm 43 now and he died when I was 21. And in the end, I truly felt like, mental illness took her too, because she never, she went to therapy a handful of times, but if she didn't like what they said, she would <laughs> never go back. Um, she never went to like a grief group or it, she'd go through periods of, of starting good habits, but they never stuck. She never got the help. She refused to take antidepressants or anxiety medication. And I, I just couldn't help but think as we left the grave that day on the way to the nursing home to start hospice, knowing that she was never going to 
come out of there about how different her life could have been if she would have gotten help, if she would have said, you know what, I'm not okay. Um, I realize that I'm struggling and I need help. She could still be around. Neither of my kids are, you know, married yet. And she was 67. Like there's so much life. My grandma, her mom is 88 and still living a great life. So it really, it really hit me then the changes that I chose to make in my life when I was laying there with her as she was dying and just being so thankful that I chose change because otherwise I, and we never know what's going to happen from day to day, obviously tomorrow's not promised, but I definitely want to give it my best shot as far as being here for my kids and being healthy and being present and just living a really good life. Because when I look at her life at the end, it seemed very empty, except for her faith in God. Her faith in that religion and in God was the most important thing to her, her entire life. And it was, that was even more important than her relationship with me or anything was, was that, but it left her alone a lot of her life. You said something interesting. Oh, you said a lot of things. <laughs> so, I know. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> Once I get going, I keep yeah, going. And, you got to stop me. Yeah, yeah, no, no, you did. You did awesome. And you're doing awesome. I was at church yesterday and the pastor talked about, um, uh, talked about that, uh, this idea of what, he didn't say it this way. This is my translation of it. What if God what if it what if it is that we don't choose God, but God chose us before we were created? Mm-hmm. What what if we were chosen prior to? And and so it's and then and, and he didn't say this. This is when I was taking notes yesterday. And then it's up to us to accept the invitation. So like like you know, AA existed longer than seven years ago. Right. And, and, and there, and there was people that, that you had knew that about that concept, you probably even knew what you needed to do long before you started the, the road of sobriety. Right. I mean, long before a couple of years ago, you knew what you needed to do. The path was already chosen for you. You just had to wake up to be on it. Right. And, and, and so I, I think, and then sometimes, right? Some people, they they they'll refuse the invitation. They'll refuse that call. And and I mean, again, that's that's the that's the upside about free will that yeah. we we can we can choose to go to Galveston, Texas, on a on on a what appears to be a whim with totally out of your comfort zone, totally against your against your previous nature and. Or we could go, no, no, that's too uncomfortable. I, I, I project it'll even be more uncomfortable. So I'm just going to stay in my familiar, my comfort comfort zone. Yep. And and then we get exactly what we're familiar with. Mm-hmm. And 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 again, it's not that it's not. It's I don't think there is a punishment from God that can ever be close to what 
the natural consequences end up being by us choosing not to accept the invitation. Yes. Right. I mean, there's, there, there is an already a natural, like, like I'm looking out my window right now and there's a railing and, and it's about a story down from, from, from that. And if I go walking, especially at in my my uh, uh struggling with some uh a, a back issue right now if i go walking on that railing right now there's there's no rule that says i can't walk on the railing but there is a consequence if i walk on that railing and i fall yes it, it doesn't have to be with a good person bad person it has nothing to do with it. it's called gravity mm-hmm. you know and and what i'm hearing you say is that even though there was a lot of things in your childhood life, your growing up years, even 10 years ago life, there's a lot of unlearning that you had to do and then adventuring that you had to do about learning that that, that is really what has been your journey over these last seven seven years is that that the invitation was there all along Mm -hmm. it was not just accepting it but then it was embracing it and that's why it sounds like why things are so even on the bad days it can still be exciting yes 100 percent. i i can't tell you oh i forgot to tell you about my life coaching i started in Remember, um, oh. I'll tell you about that in a minute, but back to what you were saying about embracing it. I went to AA meetings several times before seven years ago, mm-hmm. but I would stay sober two to six weeks, say, I, I just can't do this. Life isn't going to be fun. I would find fault, you know, with certain people in the meeting, say I don't belong there. But the the truth of it is, there may be some people that you look at in the meetings and and you think, Wow, like they're so different from me. I wouldn't be friends with them. That's true. But there's always something you can gain from the meeting. And what I know to be true is I may be miles apart from someone sitting across from me at a meeting, but we share a common thing and we're both alcoholics. So I knew that that I was finally, I was where I belonged, but I get a lot of messages from people because I share my story openly people that want help to quit drinking and they'll say can you meet with me and I I say yes and the honest to god truth is that the majority of them cancel right before we're going to meet because all of a sudden the shit gets real right and they're going to have to talk about it with me and they cancel and I just they're like I'm sorry I had this come up and I it's an excuse usually always. And I say, well, just let me know if you change your mind when you would like to meet. I know this is hard, but until you get it out there and ask for help, it can't change. And they, they look at me and I say, I can help you. I know how to help you. I know where to take you, but do you want this or does your family want it for you? Do you really, really want this? And are you ready to humble yourself and realize that You have no control when it comes to alcohol, that it's ruining your life. Are you, are you really at the end of your rope with it? And are you ready to do hard things? Are you ready to talk about the past and talk about it? Because people's family will come to me and say, can you please help my so-and-so? 
And I said, I'm sorry. There is absolutely nothing I can do until they are ready. And that means that sometimes people die, Kevin. And that is so hard to watch. And they will come to me a year later and say, they're in the hospital. This family member's in the hospital. And they're, and I'm, I say, I'm so sorry. I know it is, it is a battle, but you can't help someone until they're ready. I, um, so the life coaching that, that I can't believe I forgot to add that. That's like my biggest journey right now. So I'm actually selling my building for the board business in just doing traveling events for the boards. We do events at the winery, all different bars, workplaces, things like that. So I'll just have a little workshop in my garage and do that because my passion now, three years ago, I was teaching a board class and I tell my story every time I teach a board class. Um, to get rid of the stigma around what an alcoholic is. I'm like, by the way, I'm an alcoholic. This is how I started this business, blah, blah, blah. So this woman came up to me. I remember exactly where I was standing and I remember who she was. It was one of those moments. And she said, it was after class. She said, you know that this isn't what you're supposed to do in life, right? And I'm like, what do you mean that this business changed my life? Like I can travel now. I, I love what I do. She said, this is just creating a following for you and giving, getting you in front of people and developing resilience in you and all these different things by owning your business and fighting these battles and, and getting in front of people. And she said, what you're supposed to do in life is help other people, other women change their life. And I thought about it and I get so many messages from people saying, can you, you're just so happy. How can I be that happy? How did you, you know, I'm struggling with my husband. I'm struggling with my mom. I'm struggling with this. You know, they're blaming all these external things, which is valid, is valid. But at some point you have to realize only you are responsible for your happiness and you have to take control of the external things and your reaction to them. But they say, could you meet me for coffee and tell me how you got happy, how you did this? And I'm like, look, I would love to meet you for coffee, but I cannot tell you how I changed my life over coffee. There, That is not enough time at all. So I set a goal of becoming a life coach. And last fall, it was right as my mom was getting sick. I, my daughter, my daughter and I call each other out and push each other to do better. And she looked at me and she said, so mom, when are you going to quit talking about becoming a life coach and actually do it? And I was like, oh, damn. And she was right. I was stalling because I was scared as hell to do it. Um, I had imposter syndrome. I thought, well, I have been divorced twice now. Who's going to want to listen to me? Because I don't really consider myself to be um, the best resource on like relationships. And I just had all these doubts and fears going on in my head. And then finally, I signed up. I made a big investment with a program. And I did it, the, the program, even through my mom being sick and everything. And I, what I wanted to choose for my offer, like when I posted on Facebook is I help women get happy or I help women go to bed at night feeling like they lived the day as the best version of themselves. But my coaches told me that that wasn't marketable. They're like, it's really hard to measure happiness. So people are going to say, well, I didn't get my money's worth, you know, <laughs> and it could have been their fault. So I chose the niche of I help women lose weight for good because I'm very into fitness. I have a very level mindset as far as allowing yourself certain things and not all or nothing, you don't diet or anything like that. It's literally just changing your lifestyle and working through all of the mental weight 
that gets in our way and weighs us down in the negative self-talk. So I chose that and I started with, I remember putting my first Facebook post out and then scheduling my like first consultation calls. And it was November. I was terrified. I got nine women to start and I just could not believe it. I knew that it was God showing me this is the right path. And I've, of course, since then encountered, you know, people quitting, people quitting with it. Not everyone's going to stick with it and problems. But I have 26 women now and it is by far the best thing that I have ever done in my life. It fills my cup. And to watch these women be able to go on carnival rides with their kids when before they couldn't get the belt shut on it and be able to do things with their grandkids that they didn't have the energy for before to be able to quit a job or leave a relationship that is weighing them down and not making them happy. I'm able to help them through all of these things. So that's that's my passion now. And so I'm selling the building to create more space in my life to really go after that and and do what I want and do do basically what what brings me alive. Well, you know, Erica, I I know that what's there's so many different things that you've just just shared about this. And obviously this is what you're most passionate about right now because it, you, <laughs> you're it's it's in your voice, right? And yeah. so we you know we we talk about, you know, suicide awareness for the month of September. And we talk about and and suicide is the end result of being in that darkness. It's mm-hmm. it's and I think so many times we have this negative uh, we have the stereotype, these myths about about suicide. Um, I, I I spoke briefly uh, recently about this. Is that there's a movie with Tom Hanks called A Man Called Otto, and he had all these risk factors of of that would lead to him being in this darkness and and make sense for him to end his life. Wife died from, you know, died from cancer and he lost his job and the neighborhood was falling apart, you know, all these different things. But this neighbor moves into the neighborhood and she insists on saying hi to him and meeting him and needs his help. Well, her and her family become a protective factor for, for Otto in the movie. And that protective factor, that light becomes that becomes a light in his darkness that becomes that becomes the hope and so when we're when you're talking about helping women right keep keeping 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 off the things that are weighing them down Mm -hmm. and 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 it translates into adipose tissue it translates into body fat you know but that isn't really Right. Because most people that have come and seen you have been on at least probably an average of three diets before they came and met. At least. Right. It's and and there's reasons why those programs didn't work. And you're teaching them, coaching them, walking with them about those other factors. And those are to me, when we're living, Joseph Campbell says, where we're living in our bliss, we're living in our passion, um, that's a protective factor right that there are going to be storms that are going to still happen in our life but the difference is that we know that's just a storm yeah it's not permanent it's just a storm 
Yeah, that doesn't mean that it's not going to cause damage. That doesn't mean it isn't going to be scary. That doesn't mean that right now it's really, really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But the difference is, is that we know that it's not permanent. Yep. And I know that I will come out on the other side of whatever comes my way. And I know that I don't have to pick up a drink over it. And I know what to do. Even when my mom was dying and it, it was in April, which is my brother passed away April 21st and her services were actually on the the April 21st, the day he died. It, It was like, it was one of those weird things that probably wasn't so weird. And I still got up, went to the gym every morning, not because I want to be fit and lose weight because that is what I need for my mind to stay in my routine for me to be my best self. And I can't stop any of that or I risk losing my happiness, my joy, everything I've worked hard for. And with these women, that's what we focus on is how I'll say to them, how is your mind right now? You know, we focus on rather than the scale, how is your mind? And I have created, I, I don't let just anyone in. I am, I'm not going to take someone's money to coach them if I don't feel that I can truly help them, which means we have to have a vibe between us where they can be honest with me. Yeah. And and I let them into this group of other women that I consider to be a sacred space that I've created with these women where we can talk about the hard things in life. We can talk about, we can cry and say, I had this fight with so-and-so. And to be able to talk openly and honestly with a with a group of women like that is so therapeutic for all of them and they feel supported and sometimes that's just what we need on our bad days is to feel like others are there for us and fighting and fighting the same battle that we are yeah yeah 100 Eric, we could probably talk for another couple hours you know <laughs> yeah. and, and if i was uh you know tim ferris or uh joe rogan or something we would have a three-hour podcast but <laughs> <laughs> um I do want uh, I do want to uh, have you share if someone wanted to reach out to you, either connect with you, uh, either with your your board and brush business or we get to know you as potentially a coach. What's the best way for them to reach out to you? So on Facebook, uh, Erica Esselman, E-S-S-E-L-M-A-N, if you just shoot me a message on there or the Erica's Board Creations Facebook page. You can also message there. So those would be the two ways. I'm going to set up a page. Uh, I have a private page for my coaching and I'm going to set up a public one. But I, my coaches taught me to take messy action and just get right into it. Don't, don't make everything perfect. Learn as you go. So the Facebook page is coming, but I've learned a lot in the nine months that I've, I've been doing it by actually doing it. Sure. hundred percent. I agree. I, I agree. Yeah, there's a whole whole belief by a guy named Kawasaki that that he talks about the same thing about just jumping in and not yep. having to have the perfect plan to get started. So, yes. um, well, thank you again for being on the show. I'm looking Thanks forward for to you being me. one of our speakers in September. And um, again, your your energy is is contagious. So uh, thank, <laughs> thank you, you, thank you very much. As, as always, as we are uh, looking at uh, in the in the upcoming month of September being suicide awareness and not just for the month of September, but, but always, if you find yourself or someone, you know, that is in that darkness, um, definitely um, utilize 988 or the suicide hotline or the crisis text line 741741. And if there's an imminent danger that is happening, please, um, uh, 
please contact 911 and be able to uh, get some medical assistance right away. And if there's something in Erica's story that, that touched you and you think that someone could benefit from hearing about it, um, please share this episode and Erica's information as well. Um, look forward to being with you next week as always. Uh, thank you. <laughs>